India has a strong, growing tech industry, bolstered by the existence of success stories like Sabir Badia, who co-founded Hotmail. And like many governments globally, the Indian government is currently encouraging citizens to take IT skills training. The message the government uses often includes a promise. You live in a digital age, and as such, IT skills will be your ticket to security, prosperity, and general social mobilization. You might even become the next Sabir Badia. And if you happen to be a marginalized person living in an economically precarious situation, that promise might be quite tempting. But can that promise be fulfilled? everyone, welcome to another episode of Gender, Sex and Tech, continuing the conversation. I'm your host, Jennifer Jill Fellows. And today, I've invited Dr. Srila Sarkar on the show to talk about her ethnographic research in the neighborhood of Silampur in New Delhi, India, in the hopes of answering this question, can skills set people free? Dr. Srila Sarkar is an associate professor in the Department of Communication at Santa Clara University. Her research uses ethnographic methods to focus on smart cities, new forms of capitalism, labor, and identities of class, caste, and gender in India with specific reference to the information economy. Hi, Srilo, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I want to take a moment and recognize that this podcast was created on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people of the Kakite Nation. I want to start with a bit of background. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about how you became interested in communication as a major. Yeah, thank you for that question. So I actually did not major in communication during my undergraduate studies in India. So I was in English literature, you could major like specifically in literature. And that's what I majored in. And that was really a great introduction to like critical thinking, you know, thinking about cultural studies. And I just felt that I wanted to follow a more creative, uh, quote unquote, a more creative side of my career. So I ended up going to a one-year graduate program in Mumbai. And what it really did was it, you know, taught me how to acquire documentaries, filmmaking skills, some journalism skills, but always with a very social justice purpose. And then, you know, long story short, I worked for about five years in the media industry in India. And I just I just felt that I wanted to do something different and I wanted to go back to school. So I applied for a combination of film schools and communication research programs. You know, I got through some great film schools, but they didn't give me money. I definitely didn't have the money to do it. And I ended up in a program that really studies the impact of communication on society from more a cultural critical viewpoint. And yeah, so I think I'm just an accidental communication studies person. And I feel like my career in academia, it's something I love, but it's not something that 
I had thought I would do when I was, you know, an undergraduate and even for many years after that. Oh, that's so interesting. I really like that you didn't go like straight into a PhD program, that you were working for a while and then kind of felt like you wanted to change. I think that's a really cool narrative. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it was when I was working and, you know, doing really exciting journalistic reporting on an environmental show in India. It was really cool. And it gave me the kind of documentary filmmaking and interviewing skills that I bring to my ethnographic work. So I think what that also helped me is it just helps me with the research kind of research I want to do and the research I do, which is being on the field and talking to people and interviewing and you know, being there for tough situations. But it also made me realize that, yes, like a three minute story, you know, on TV is influential, but I need more time and more space to tell stories and find out what stories are about. Yeah, a three minute story is not always that nuanced, right? It can pique people's interest, but you can't really get into all the details. Right, not into the complexity. Yes. Right. Okay. So with that bit of a background, that kind of helps me understand some of the skill set you had that goes into the kind of work that you do right now. I also like the plug that if you're going to go to graduate school, you should get funded. (laughs) I think that's absolutely true. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) So can you talk now a little bit about your own research? And in particular, can you talk about the kind of existing inequalities that currently affect the IT industry in India? Yeah, so the work that we're talking about today comes from a project that has now been more than a decade and that actually I have not been working on, uh, you know, in all honesty, in the past couple of years because my interests have shifted to other things. But this project has basically looked at IT skills training for um, marginalized communities, especially urban poor women in New Delhi. So in terms of the inequalities in the IT industry, I mean, so the IT industry, you know, India is really known, it's known as one of the world's largest emerging economies. It's the IT industry is, you know, both a symbol of its success and materially important. And it employs about, I think, like 5 million people out of a population of over a billion, right? So it's not the employment, the number of people it employs is still very, very small. But it is an immensely, you know, powerful institution for thinking about social change. So the IT industry in India is, you know, it's not a monolith. It's um, It's got different, like, kinds of employment and different kinds of workers. So the promise of the IT industry in India has been one of meritocracy. It has been one of leveling social and economic differences. The IT industry has you know, held out and has protested against affirmative actions or what are called reservations in India on the basis of caste, saying that this was dilute the meritocracy, uh, you know, and that really what they do is recruit, you know, people, people from all across the country and who go to different institutions. And this is largely research has shown, you know, that this is this is not true. So in terms of like more white collar jobs, people who are recruited are people who also go to a certain kind of school or college and, you know, in in a certain kind of city. So there is this cultural capital. So there's not just access to like training or coaching that it needs to get into extremely competitive education institutions in India. But there's also access to 
just being the right kind of person on paper, you know, having the right accent, looking a certain way, which of course is all very much shaped by your identities of class and caste and gender. So again, there's different kinds of research that points to the fact that caste remains uh, an important um, identity of discrimination within the IT industry, right? So even if you can, even if you end up going to like a really competitive college in India and you get a job like like a like a white collar job uh you are still subject to discrimination on the basis of your caste so that is one set of workers that you know i'm talking about here but the women that i'm studying really occupy a position at the lower rung of the information economy and these are women who have historically been marginalized because they're muslim because they're women because they are poor and again, the promise that the IT industry here holds is that you will enter into these quote unquote clean occupations that will promise bring forth rapid mobility. But again, as my research demonstrates that, you know, the structural like barriers or constraints based on your identity very much remains in place and actually participation in these training programs reinforces but and also can create new kind of inequalities. Okay. Wow. So we have kind of all the existing inequalities that are already there in terms of class, caste, um, religion, and gender, among mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the issue of, do you have access to a training facility? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. even if you get through the training facility, all these existing inequalities don't necessarily go away and people right. still have trouble breaking into certain occupations is what it sounds like. Yeah, ex exactly. So then, you know, there's been so much emphasis on access to technology, right? Like the digital divide, like if you cross the digital divide, you know, there's just going to be a different kind of world waiting out there. And I think the women I study do get an opportunity of sorts to cross this digital divide or get access to technology, but what kind of access is this? And, you know, what results at the end, as you're pointing out, are really important questions to ask. I really want to talk a little more about this promise, this idea of you cross the digital divide mm -hmm. and, and there's going to be this new world. The world will open up for you. Or you also earlier referenced the idea of the meritocracy, the promise of meritocracy in the IT economy. So can we talk a little bit about the marketing message in India and maybe more globally, depending on how you want to answer this, that acquiring tech skills will, in, will enable people to kind of cross this divide, lift themselves out of poverty, maybe even launch themselves into extreme wealth. What, what have you found regarding this kind of messaging? Yeah, that's a great question. So in India, I'll talk about that context. Uh, you know, first is India, where I was doing field work in Silampur, uh, for example, is full of the, the program that I was studying was a state funded training program. But the the neighborhood that I was working in is just full of these hoardings and signs that advertise IT training classes. And there are a whole bunch of, you know, private and state actors in play there, right? And I think in the context of this, you know, neighborhood that I was studying, these classes are mainly classes that will teach you like really basic IT skills and they cost, some of them are free, but most of them do charge quite a steep tuition, at least steep compared to, you know, the incomes of people in, in those areas. So, so I think the promise really here in the context of, you know, Silampur, which is not a wealthy neighborhood, is that 
especially for women, I think is that you can get these jobs in the so-called new economy, which is, you know, jobs that are as in the mall, like even in the checkout counter or work for the Delhi Metro Rail or working at a lower level call center or working for, you know, the government program, the UID, which is the unique identification number programs as a data entry person. So I think the promise here is of that you will, even if, say, historically, your family has done one occupation, you know, um, you will transcend this by getting included into this new economy that relies on tech. But as I'm also pointing out that these jobs are, you know, really about lower, like training people with for, for lower level tech positions, right? And these positions can often end up being precarious and vulnerable and, you know, have other kinds of contradictions. But yes, the promise is, you know, powerful in some ways, even if it's a promise, not even if, but if it's a promise about, um, you know, getting to work in an air conditioned space with clothes that look smart and you just, you know, get to go into a different arena. Of course, all these issues with that, but at the same time, it's a very powerful promise of mobility. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's this promise of mobility, of changing circumstances, it sounds like. So if your family's done the same occupation for generations, there's a promise that you're going to have access to different kind of work opportunities, that those opportunities might be in comparatively more comfortable settings, like you referenced air conditioning, for example. Mm-hmm. And and this could be quite powerful for people. And you said they're they're on billboards kind of all over the neighborhood. And we'll talk a little bit more about Sealampur more specifically, but that they're on billboards, that this advertising, it sounds like is quite in people's faces. Is that fair? Yes, it is very much in people's faces, like computer training centers, you know, I mean, I think they've been really popular for like the last couple of decades, at least, but even before that, there is, there's this, um, and if you sort of look at, you know, Sabir Bhatia, who founded Hotmail, or you look at Sundar Pichai, who's the CEO of Google, I mean, there's also like this, like percolation of this narrative about successful individuals who have made it big, right? And IT, of course, you know, one also has to remember that not to take away Sundar Pichai's accomplishments, but, you know, he is also an upper caste man who is educated at the right institutions. So just to think about that, think about that kind of positionality in contrast to the women that I am interacting with. Mm -hmm. But that narrative can be really powerful for people, right? Yes, it's a, it's a very, very powerful narrative yeah. because other opportunities are also constrained, right? So your research outlines that the Indian government launched a number of these centers that we've been talking about, these ICT skill training centers and courses across the country. And you've said that some of these are free, but some of them are quite expensive when compared to the median income in a specific area, for example. Mm -hmm. Can we talk, you referenced a little bit that these courses teach kind of entry-level computer skills. Can you tell us a bit more about more specifically what these courses would teach people? Well, so I studied a particular program. So yes, the context is that, you know, there are many different kinds of training programs. The one I studied was funded by the government. And actually it was in a partnership with 
a foundation that was the found the foundation of a private IT company. So it was a public-private partnership. So of course, you know, there are interesting like questions there of like state and civil society and the boundaries between them. So I studied this computer training program that was especially targeted towards women. And it taught them basic skills like Microsoft Word, you know, CorelDRAW, some Photoshop, some HTML. It was a six-month training program. And usually you had like 25 to 30 women in one class. The idea really was that, you know, we are training women for the job market, like we're training them to get a job so they can finish the certificate course, the certificates that's offered by the state, and then go and get employment. Can you help our listeners kind of understand what it was like to attend this course? So you were there in this room with 25 to 30 women. What else did you notice about the room? Like, how are how are things set up? How many computers maybe are there? Stuff like that. Yeah, so maybe I can just quickly place the neighborhood Salampur I'm studying in some context. So that might help us place the room. Amazing, yeah. So Salampur is known as a resettlement colony in New Delhi. What it basically means is that, you know, people were evicted and re, quote unquote resettled there, right? So it has quite a history of uh, violent state intervention. So in the 70s, for example, during the national emergency years in India, um, Muslim men were basically asked to get voluntarily, quote unquote, to get sterilized so that they can keep their families together and receive small plots of land in Silampur. And over the years, there's been a lot of protests about government closures of industries that the state has deemed as polluting. And this is also a largely a Muslim dominated, a working class Muslim neighborhood and Muslims are the largest minority in India. So when I started doing fieldwork there, you know, I grew up in New Delhi and I lived on the other end of the city. So the south, the south side of the city, which is supposed to be upper class. And when I started doing fieldwork, you know, people just would be like, my friends would be like, are you sure that's a safe place to go to, like where you're doing your fieldwork? So it's also being framed in the news media as that as a dangerous place of insurgence, which is again, you know, referring to basically Muslim men. So this is Silampur uh, for, I would say, the time that I was working there for a family of like seven to eight people, maybe the average monthly income would be like $150. Uh, This is not a very prosperous neighborhood. And the computer training um, program is located, oh, sorry, was located in a small house that had two levels and it was a very tiny house. And this house also housed other programs, for example, tailoring or like, you know, what they called beautician courses. And the computer one was a part of them. Okay, so now coming to the computer center was located on the first floor of this of this tiny space of the small space. And unlike the other classes where women sat on the floor, you know, the computer girls, as they were known, the women who studied computers, they sat on chairs. And this, I talk about this in an article in Feminist Media Studies, that this was actually an interesting indicator, like an indicator of the fact that in this area, relatively better off people, economically better off people attended this program. So even though there were 
they were definitely facing economic challenging economic circumstances it's still the better off you know piece of of silampur that came to the center and i think they had like six to seven computer terminals and there and that there was a practical class practicum class and then there was like a lecture session so and maybe multiple classes during the day and all in the same room i am assuming yes all all in the same room and it's a very narrow street so you can actually see the small denim units which do use like a significant amount of technology you can see uh, the cattle sheds you can like really peep into your neighbor's house so this is like a, it's it's a space if you imagine it that's you know pretty open to the rest of the neighborhood like like most spaces were okay i i really appreciate that background context on silampur itself the history of how it came to be and the marginalization that people who live there tend to experience i think is really helpful for kind of grounding what we're going to talk about with this course and with the women who took the course so you've told us a little bit about the women that were enrolled in the course that comparatively speaking they may have had some kind of economic privilege over some of the other people in their neighborhood can you talk any more about what the young women that you met were like? Yeah, so my relationship with the center, you know, lasted for like about 7 or 8 years, which means that I interacted with different groups of women, but for my field work, which was over a year, I interacted with these women at the space of the center and then, you know, also like once they finished, I kept relationships with them. So, yeah, these are women who are, you know, anywhere from 18 years to about 30 years. and they are all muslim women and a lot of them actually so they're framed in sort of policy discourse and you know in the program documents as these women like as these submissive quote unquote muslim women who need this program to basically become modern right so that is a framing of them even in in media in a particular way and you know contrary to that all the women had actually had jobs so they had worked outside home they had participated in the modern economy in some cases they were the main breadwinners for their families and they were there the really the, the central reason they were there was that they felt that they needed to help their families economically so these are women who have done things like you know worked as a physician's aide they have worked you know as a nurse they've worked in an education institution so these are not women who have not experienced modernity and have not experienced the modern economy but they remained to be framed like that you know even among the more well meaning staff at the center wow wow so we can see kind of the biased assumptions that perhaps some of the people running the center and other people might have towards these women and that that might in addition create kind of barriers to breaking into certain careers potentially if these women are viewed as people who need help entering the modern economy I'm using my air quotes on that. That would in addition kind of reinforce existing prejudices, reinforce existing marginalization that they might face. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. And you referenced a little bit reasons why some of the young women in your field work 
or that you interacted with in your fieldwork chose to take these courses. So you referenced the idea of feeling that they needed to do more to help their families or of many of the young women being the primary income earner, perhaps, or the sole income earner for their families. Is there anything more you can tell us about the choice to enroll in these courses? Yes, I think the choice to, you know, enroll in these courses is, was done very much out of necessity. So even if many of these young women had worked before, there was, you know, substantial obstacle based on who they were. So, for example, you know, many of them mentioned that they could not get an interview for positions they wanted because they had a Silampur address or their last name was Muslim or, you know, you had women who had had to do night shifts and as like working in a nurse or as a call center and found that really difficult to do in terms of commuting, right? And in terms of concerns about their safety. So I think this was really seen as an opportunity to, you know, what the program was promising was that one would gain quick employment. And I don't think that the women, you know, I think they were realistic in where they could get employment. So a lot of them, for example, wanted to work in the nearby mall or they wanted to work for the Delhi Metro Rail, which was, you know, which was the the station at the station, which was not far away. So I think these were realistic, but also, you know, over the years, I followed the number of women who got jobs. So we're not even talking here about what kind of employment, just whether they did get a job right after this. And actually the numbers that got them were just, were very few. Right. Yeah. So there is a way that promise of being included in this so-called information economy, like it's it's stemmed at various levels. Right. Yeah. I was going to come back to that kind of promise that is being promoted in the marketing material. And it sounds like many of the women that you interacted with in your fieldwork who entered into these training courses didn't necessarily believe the higher project promise of kind of like launching yourself into this free and open space past the digital divide. But they did perhaps believe the the other promise of just kind of like more opportunities. And of some kind of mobility. I don't think that they believe that this would, you know, bring like massive mobility, but, you know, at least mobility uh, enough to like make sure that their families were fed and the younger sibling could go to school. Right. And it sounds like even that, what we might call a more modest promise was not necessarily something that these training courses were fulfilling. Yes, they were not. Okay. Can I ask, you referenced that some of these training courses are free and some of them were not. The one that you studied, Hmm. did students have to pay for it or was it government funded? No, students didn't pay for that. So it was, yeah. So that was another reason that, you know, uh, many of the women enrolled in the program because the other programs around, even though I think that some of them could have like probably taught slightly more advanced skills. I mean, they were just really unaffordable for the women. So again, that is why the computer training center was very attractive. That makes a lot of sense, practically speaking. Mm -hmm. You also said that, there were there were a lot of places where mobility or opportunities were stopped. So you followed the women after they left the training center, after they completed their training. And many of them did not go on to find employment or find the kind of employment that they wanted. And you referenced a variety of reasons, like having a Silampur accent, mm-hmm. having a Muslim last name. 
Were there any other barriers that could have prevented people from entering into the kind of employment that they were looking for? So, okay, so yeah, I think just sort of teasing this question out a bit. So I think one thing is, of course, women like not even getting the kind of jobs that they would have, they would think that they would get easily, right? So yeah, so like, for example, metro railway jobs or jobs at the reception as, a you know, uh, jobs at a reception for an office or working for a mall. I think some of that was like the same kind of like prejudices, which is that many of them, for example, spoke basic English and or didn't speak English with the correct accent and not with Silampur, but I've also studied more corporate led programs that were training people in these skills. And but what they were also doing is they had textbooks in which they were training people how to dress in a particular way, how to speak English with the correct accent, how to maintain their hair, you know, so it was it was like this like hygiene, you know, hygiene and manners textbook, right? So while this Lumper program doesn't do that, there definitely, again, here we are talking about not just having economic capital, but also cultural capital. So for example, you know, one of the things that the women interacted would say to me is like, you're so lucky because you went to a really good school in Delhi and that enabled you to go abroad and re- like really live your own life. Right. So I think sort of that huge difference in both cultural and economic capital, it prevented them from even sometimes getting basic jobs that rely on these kind of pink, you know, pink collar work skills, like more gendered, more feminized traits. Right. But even there, they were felt not to be adequate. And then also, I think there was, you know, tremendous discrimination on being Muslim. Right. So we're seeing here cultural capital, perhaps class and or caste discrimination in terms of how people dress, the kind of English accent that they speak with, mm-hmm. and perceptions um, and discriminations on that. And then, of course, you've also said discriminations and marginalizations based on them being Muslim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And so the ICT training course didn't really like having the skills wasn't enough necessarily to overcome these biases and prejudices. No, it wasn't. And in in terms of like, there was, of course, first of all, that employment, the numbers were low, but then also the kind of work that the women got. And I, you know, I was just talking about this. It was also, if you look at it, it was lower end, vulnerable, precarious. You would deal with male customers who would harass you. So it was definitely not work that, You know, so in many instances, for example, you could work for a mall that would promise you, you know, a certain incentive and then you would work and you would not get the incentive. So these are also jobs that are not great jobs to have. You know, they don't pay well. They're not protected. um, They can come with different forms of abuse. So even when the women did get these jobs and I interviewed a few of these women, you know, that sort of that promise of inclusion is it also felt shot. So can we return to the ICT training center itself? In your research, while you were there with the women learning at the ICT training center, You speak of the women engaging in what you call clandestine resistance, 
and you juxtapose this against organized resistance. So first of all, for people who may not know, can you talk about the distinction between clandestine and organized resistance? So I, I wrote quite a bit about Silampur and, you know, there were all these pieces that were published, but then I kind of kept thinking back to these two incidents that had occurred at the center. And also I just thought of like, you know, many sort of little little incidents like smaller incidents that I had in my field notes that I was trying to make sense of because definitely even when I was there at the center you know they did speak to me of pushback they did speak to me of a kind of resistance of a kind of rebellion right but this was a different kind of rebellion so in Silampur for example you know there have been protests on the streets when the government has shut down many garment manufacturing units there saying that this is not good for the environment but then critics have called it out also saying this is a form of bourgeois environmentalism where you know you basically protect the interests of the middle class and the upper middle class right so so there have been protests against these decisions of the government you know actually very recently the government came up with this proposal of the citizenship amendment act and the national register of citizens so the ca and the nrc that would effectively disenfranchise Indian Muslims who had been there, you know, for a long time and strip them out of their citizenship. And that was actually one of the first times that the people in the street in Silampur were not just men, but women protested against this decision. And they were promptly, you know, clamped down by the violent machinery of the state in this instance. So there is a history of protests and rebellion especially against the state in this neighborhood. And women, for example, that I talked to did not participate in the earlier protests about the closure of industries, but definitely had family members who did, right? So, so there is that that operates. And But the kind of resistance that I was looking at was really located in these quiet, like often quiet instances or a moment of like laughter or a moment of like, you know, silent pushback that was really saying that, hey, what are you promising us is not what is happening, you know? So you're, so this is, so they were pushing back against that promise, but it happened in these very sort of, you know, seemingly innocuous ways and very everyday kind of settings. And I think that's why it took me some time to write about these because as I thought through things and I spoke to people further, I was like, yes, there is some kind of, there's, there's resistance going on here, but how does one understand it? You know, especially in the context of Silampur where resistance has looked different. Okay. I think that's really helpful. So there is a history in Silampur of what we might call a more organized resistance, like resistance, like marches and organized protests. Largely, this has been driven by men. Mm -hmm. Sometimes women have been involved, but often these kind of more organized, more public protests mm -hmm. have been protests that have been uh, men protesting. And so you say, though, that in the ICT training center, you still see this kind of resistance, but it isn't like an organized protest. It isn't like um, marching or something, but there are kind of these more subtle pushbacks. And I really like the idea that the subtlety meant it took you a little bit to kind of identify what was happening, that you had all these field notes of laughter when perhaps the instructor thinks the laughter is inappropriate. Or you tell a story actually in the article I read of 
uh, one of the computer girls who was habitually late to arriving to class because she was uh, or would run out in the middle of class to go make food for her mother mm -hmm. and that the instructor really started getting quite upset at this and that she pushed back when the instructor started kind of upbraiding her for being late. So can you talk about a few of these examples of clandestine protests, as you call them, and kind of mm -hmm. what you think they might be signifying? Maybe it's more than one thing. <laughs> right. No, that's a great question. I think like, you know, also like why it took me some time to write about this is because I don't want to overtly romanticize this resistance again. So I, you know, I want to locate it in this very particular context that's happening and tease out, you know, some of the complexities or contradictions involved there. So I think that was why it took me a while to get here too. So yeah, in terms of, so there were these significant moments. So for example, one thing that I wrote about is there was a class, you know, the, the, the computer class used to happen. And as I've described, it's a, it's located on a narrow street, the house, and there are these three women opposite. So the street was so narrow that these three women could just stand, you know, in their balcony and just look in and hear, like the windows were always open because there were often, you know, power cuts. So they could just hear the class. And I mean, this happened for like, you know, one, like, like over a year that I just saw these women almost like just come out. There were different generations, three different generations come out and stand in the balcony and listen to the class. And the instructor would just, you know, get upset about it. He would be like, yeah, this is somebody invading a space. This is not disciplined. And there would be these moments where the computer girls, the computer killer as they were called, would just like defy him and interact. So for example, you know, there was this incident where one of them took out this USB stick and she was like, USB stick, they call like, look, this is a USB stick. And, and there was like this laughter that was shared by the women, you know, opposite and the women in class. And the instructor told them to be quiet and, you know, immediately like everything was quiet. But I think what that signified is that there was also a pushback towards these like narrow messages that the women were getting about basically like taking individual responsibility and pulling yourself by a, by a bootstraps kind of narrative to signifying more community to signifying in, in many ways more joy in that community and also a feeling that sharing this like sharing the class or sharing a piece of technology was no big deal and I go into this more, you know, in, in the piece that you read, but the Silampur also has, it's located in cultures of piracy and counterfeit, whether that's media material, you know, whether that's denims. And I think there is a sharing of, of materials, including different forms of tech and media that, you know, the women just feel like, what's the big deal? And also pushing against that very narrow individualist productivity message. Yeah. No. And I, I like that too, because in this case, it's also like sharing the knowledge, sharing the knowledge and sharing community mm -hmm. and, and the instructor putting in this boundary being like, no, like the knowledge is for this class and for the people enrolled in this class mm -hmm. and not for the people across the street on the balcony. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's really interesting, particularly given kind of the geography that you've described here, where Sharing would be quite, I think, natural if you're in a geography where everything is kind of close together and you can see everything across the street yeah. really easily. <laughs> like it would almost almost kind of require slash cultivate a uh, culture of sharing 
And, and then when you added on the discussion of piracy and counterfeit being quite common, I can see how the women wouldn't necessarily think this is a big deal, given that kind of cultural location. Right. Absolutely. And it's not like the women in class and the women opposite the street were the best of friends. I honestly like never saw them interact <laughs> once that class was done. But I think they just came together, you know, for this moment of like community curiosity and also definitely, I think, pushback. Like, like it was like, OK, yeah, you can tell us not to do this, but yeah, we're going to continue to do it. Yeah. So this kind of clandestine resistance, like you can't stop the women across the street from listening. Right. It's clandestine because, you know, there's I mean, the the pushback there is more subtle. Right. So it's not like the women, for example, not showing up for class or it's not about them directly challenging, you know, their male instructor. But it is in the different ways they push back. So, for example, you know, the incident that you were talking about that this woman, she had a mother who was not doing well, who lived down the street and she would just disappear for like 10 minutes and she would say, I'm going to put on the rice, right? And then be back. And this was really frowned upon and she was given lectures like, you know, when you start working like like real work, you're never going to get an opportunity to do this. And she basically was like told them to be quiet because I think what she also wanted them to recognize is that she had these other identities and other roles and, you know, for her learning computers, as it was called, you know, computer seek now, so learning computers was, it was embedded with all of these different kinds of identities. So I think she was also like creating her own space and her own way of progressing with this class. I really like that, that she had other identities. Like when you step into the classroom door or in some ways, this is true of all of us, right? When you step into the work world, it's not like your other commitments and your other identities go away. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a fiction that is very widespread <laughs> that like now you're here and you're a person of business. But like if my kid's school calls, I'm going. <laughs> right. And I think that while this was not collectively articulated, like I don't think the women sat and had a meeting about this and decided this was going to happen. I think their actions also showed that they were trying to build a more collaborative, uh, supportive of each other, feminist space, right, within the constraints of the center. So it strikes me that a lot of the examples of resistance that you noticed and that you talk about in the piece that I read were, as you said, kind of community affirming and community building, as opposed to the individualist uh, narrative that the center's marketing was putting forward, this individualist, you will cross the digital divide and you will pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that a lot of this is quite feminist and also that there are very much acts of care. And so to what extent do you think we can see these acts of resistance as a replacement of this kind of individual initiative marketing with a pushback of community, the importance of community support and care? Yeah, it's a great question. I think like one of the reasons that the women came to the center, you know, I mean, the first reason and the most important reason was to get a job and make money. But really, it was also a space that 
you know, they could come between like dropping the kids off or, you know, get a break for the morning chores because it was a legitimate place to come to, to do a computer training class. And many of these women just hung out in the center for as long as they could because it was a welcoming space. Now, having said that, you know, the computer girls, because they were usually more educated, you need to, I think you needed to be at least like have graduated from 10th grade to, you know, be a part of this program. They also shouldered like a lot of the burden or, you know, the labor of helping the greater community. So for example, the center, uh, because it was state sponsored, also held like these free legal clinics. And then it held, you know, an actual like medical clinic, right? And the women would often get sort of drafted or they would volunteer to do a lot of that kind of work. And I talk about this in another piece and, um, you know, which is talking about uh, smart cities and Silampur is that the women were also drafted by the state to actually go like count residents in Silampur, which was a very complicated process for this like digitization, you know, of ID program that the Delhi government was doing, right? So all this to say, yes, that space they entered to, definitely they, you know, came to, there for commu- came to it for community, but they were also doing this, you know, labor of helping the community, often encouraged by the state without really any real recognition of their work. Like they identified themselves sometimes as social workers, even they were not. Um, But, you know, they took on many of those roles. So without any recognition or due compensation. Yeah. The idea of community, you know, in that way here is, is, it gets a little complicated. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think that is something that is really complicated about thinking about care and care work mm-hmm. is on the one hand, it is extremely vital, right? And I can see why uh, one of the girls that you interacted with just pushed back against her instructor and was like, look, like I'm still a daughter. Mm-hmm. I still need to go home and put the rice on for my mom. And that doesn't go away when I get into the classroom. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we've seen that care and care work is ripe for for exploitation, right? Um, that people end up because you do care, <laughs> you end up doing care work without compensation. And often the people who do the care work are people who are already marginalized and exploited in other ways. Right. And so seeing the kind of dual nature of care work here, mm-hmm. it's very sad to me, but it makes a lot of sense to me that that is happening. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, this kind of care work centered around the fact that the women knew basic technology, right? So there are all these complicated forms that you would need for various social service schemes of the state that, you know, residents would come and in many cases, you know, they were illiterate, but even if they were not, they could not really make sense of those forms, right? A lot of them had got digitized, there were no computers, so the center had a computer. So the women, you know, felt that it was their responsibility to help, right? So one, they were enlisted, but they also, in many cases, did this voluntarily because they felt as people who had, you know, some like basic technological skills, they could do this. So kind of more need to help and sustain and give back to the community with the skills that they acquired at the center. Right. So they took that burden on on themselves. And, you know, then the Delhi government also recruited them for different schemes. So, yes, you know, care work here is complicated. It gets um, but it's also interesting that, of course, the kind of qualities that were needed in their interaction with 
the residents or you know counting residents for example involved being able to talk to people and have good communication skills and lead initiatives right um, which are skills that you know they acquired through previous work right but this is also skills that they were assumed not to have and again despite having those skills it often did not translate into employment that could have used those skills yeah it almost sounds like it was kind of tacitly recognized by the government if the government is recruiting them into doing this labor while at the same time being like oh these people need help to develop the skills in order to enter the information economy like that's wow that is true that's a good point so yes i think they're, they're recruited for the you know by the government because of leadership and other skills and some basic technical knowledge but yes but then the government is still giving this narrative saying these people don't have the skills that the government is also relying on them to have that's right and and then the role you know with that and other things comes without you know there's some compensation but you know very little so it really comes without any recognition without any sort of stake in you know really getting involved in building a different kind of social structure or communities in terms of support from the government right so yeah so it's also a role then comes which which is basically delegitimized at the same time that you're being recruited to you know to to do these government wow. uh, asked for tasks I just have one more question about the ICT training center in mm -hmm. Silampur specifically. So different training centers, I, I, I'm assuming not all of them target women, but the one in Silampur was specifically recruiting and targeting women. Can you tell us why that was? Why the specific focus on women in this training center? Yeah, so the Silampur training center was under this program, um, you know, Delhi government then called the Gender Resource Center. And Gender Resource Centers was specifically targeted towards helping marginalized women, you know, given the highly unequal status of women in India and specifically in Delhi. So the computer program, training program was like housed inside the gender resource center. Muslim women, because Silampur is largely a Muslim community. So really, you know, these women had like this sort of this tripartite identity of being Muslim or being poor or being women which I think the center wanted to work with, like sort of recognizing these challenges, right? But I think, of course, the problem was that instead of recognizing, for example, the structural oppressions that Muslims have faced, the emphasis became more on like bringing Muslims into the modern world. Right. So instead of looking at structural and social inequalities, the center is largely focused on like individual empowerment and individualistic narratives and individual skill training. Right. Individual skill training and also, of course, um, you know, these auto-orientalist tropes of representing Silampur itself. This has been so fascinating. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I just wanted to ask, is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with? regarding the promise of technology, these training centers, and the women of Silampur? You know, like, as this work has progressed and sort of gone into different directions, I mean, so what is the relevance of, like, Silampur, right? I mean, obviously, there are, like, a lot of bigger questions that we've talked about today. But I think it's interesting in the context of, you know, um, like, discussions about AI and, you know, the kind of jobs, uh, for example, 
that it will replace. It's like, it is relevant to look at the workers of Silam and, you know, the women in Silampur and the kind of work that they're doing. And, you know, I think really to sort of put faces and humanize them and to learn about their experiences, right? And so I think that is something that I think is an important parallel to think about um, in terms of protests and resistance. I mean, you know, I, I wrote in the piece, for example, the Amazon uh, unionizing and, and uh, you know, resistance by the workers. It's, if you look at it, it's it's similar kind of work in many ways to what the Silampur women are being trained for. And I think it's, you know, interesting and relevant to think about what resistance or organized resistance looks like, right, in those cases, uh, including the clandestine resistance um, that the Silampur women are practicing. And then questions about unionization, you know, India's got now uh, some IT unions. So there are different forms of organizing that is happening. I think th this is, um, you know, the most recent um, layoffs, for example, in the tech industry in the Bay Area, uh, the Bay Area and, you know, uh, globally. So uh, Alphabet, for example, which is, um, has, has pointed out that there have always been, for example, vulnerable workers inside Google, like the contract workers have a different kind of status, right? So I think all of these, like, like there's been organizing by security workers and tech companies in the Bay Area, for example. So I think all of these have parallels and complexities and questions that are related to the women in Silampur that I'm doing. So it's interesting to think about overall, what is this promise of tech and mobility and inclusion? And how do people, you know, especially those the people with marginalized identities experience it and really like experience policy from below or experience institutional actions from really being on the ground? One final question. Will skills set us free? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the argument in the Salampur case is that skills does not does not set does not set free. This episode of Gender, Sex, and Tech continued a conversation begun in the book Your Computer is on Fire, which I read last summer and I highly recommend to you. It includes a chapter written by Srila Sarkar titled Skills Will Not Set You Free. I want to thank Srila for sharing her research with us today. And thank you, listener, for joining me for another episode of Gender, Sex, and Tech continuing the conversation. If you would like to continue this conversation further, please reach out on Twitter at tech underscore gender. Or leave a comment on this podcast, or maybe you could consider creating your own material to continue the conversation in your own voice. Gender, Sex, and Tech is part of the Harbinger Media Network. Music provided by Epidemic Sound. This podcast is created by me, Jennifer Jill Fellows, with support from the Mark Sanders Foundation for Public Philosophy. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider buying me a coffee. You'll find a link to my Ko-fi page in the show notes. Until next time, everyone. Bye.